So I want to start this morning by talking about why do we give gifts? And also, why do we receive gifts? Okay. So there's a funny thing that goes on with gifts. And I think in both of these things about giving and receiving, you can do it in a positive way or you can do it in a negative way. Okay. So you can give gifts in a negative way in that you know, I, I'm part of a corporate organization and they get lots of training about what, how you give gifts properly without it being a bribe. <laughs> um, and also we can sometimes you know we give gifts out of duty because you know we see everybody else around us particularly this time of year we think we give gifts because everybody gives gifts you know we're surrounded with images like this that show the gifts piled high under trees and we think well everybody else is doing it so we better do it or we give it because we want to see some kind of return and we see that with our kids and this uh, continual kind of you know with Santa Claus you're you've got to behave Therefore, you're going to get something. So there's always, I'm going to do something, and then I'm going to get something back. And it's this kind of transactional thing. That's not really a good way to think about gifts either. The other one about gifts is you can think of them as symbols. So when my wife and I got married, we exchanged rings. You know, the ring doesn't say that we're married, but it's an exchange of a gift that symbolizes the specialness of the occasion. And the other thing about gifts is it's about adoration. You know, if you do gifts properly, you walk around and you think, what would my, the person I'm going to give this gift want? Or not even what would they want, what is best for them? And you'd consider, you'd work it hard, you'd think it through and you'd go, that is what I'm going to get. And you'd wrap it lovingly, you'd tie it all up and then you'd hand it over. And then the pressure begins. How are they going to receive it? There's a dance that's gone on in my life for many years about receiving of gifts. And there's ways to receive it positively and there's ways to receive it negatively. You can, when the gift comes forward, you can go, oh, that's not what I was wanting. And then you can go, oh, that really isn't what I wanted. And that's having a position in your heart of going, How am, what am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of this gift season? But you can then put your mind in another sense and say, how do I receive this with thankfulness? You know, the bare minimum, I think, in my mind is to say thank you, because it puts you in a posture of receiving. It thinks about the other person for the effort that they went to. But then you can also step aside and get yourself, you know, settled into, oh, they thought a lot about this. What are they saying to me about this? What are they saying about their love for me and what they're giving to me? They've clearly taken a lot of time thinking about this. And, and you know, I should consider this gift for what it is as an act of love and an act of um, adoration for me, which is very difficult to wear sometimes. So what I'm saying in all of this is that gift giving and receiving is a relationship. It's relational. It's not a transaction, which is often, I think, what we think our society this time of year says, that gifts are transactions. But, you know, it's relational. So today, we're going to be talking about four gifts in the Gospel of Matthew. And before, so we're going to read from Matthew, um, and we're going to start after the genealogy of Jesus. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, 
he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star rise and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, by our, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, before I kind of step into a little bit about what the gifts are. The gifts are symbolism and their adoration. I also want to take a little thing about, talk about why was Matthew writing this, this infant's narrative? Okay? It's very different to Luke's narrative. And what it's really saying is that the Magi are representative of the Gentile people. So you and me, we are the people from outside Israel. And it's really just a declaration of saying, hey, Jerusalem, Israel, you missed this. The wise men have seen the star rise. They have been looking out for this Messiah and they have seen him come. And not only have they seen him come when you weren't looking, they have also recognized who he is in the gifts that they have brought. And these gifts are the important things I want you to remember today, okay? So the first gift is of gold. And it signifies the kingship of Jesus, his kingdom that he's come to reign. And when we think of king, we've got to think about all the attributes of what a king is. So the king is the person who rules the kingdom. He protects the kingdom. He defends the kingdom. He's also the judge. He's the one who rules with fairness. 
And he also rules with justice. So he looks after the widow and the orphan. And this kingship of Jesus is predicted in advance. So we'll read about that in Daniel. So there are many predictions of Jesus' kingship, but I thought this was a good one from Daniel. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure forever. So we've got to remember that Jesus' kingdom will remain forever, okay? The next gift is frankincense. And the frankincense there is to represent his priestly office or his divinity, right? So I'm going to read a couple of, um, a couple of uh, verses about his priestly office. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this was predicted before Jesus was born in, and written by David in the Psalms. Now, the order of Melchizedek is a little confusing. Jamie spoke about it a few weeks ago, so I'll let everybody remember that sermon. So I'm not going to go into it. But Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And it, he's also known as the king of Salem, which is king of peace. So it's linking the fact that he is a priest, but he's also the king of righteousness and king of peace. And what it's also saying, the priestly office is saying that in his divinity, he is the one who has stepped into the temple. He is up in heaven now. He is interceding for us in front of God. He is pleading to God, let us enter. And that is the wonderful thing about Jesus as priest. And then in Hebrews, it goes on to explain a little bit more, a bit more expansively about Jesus' priesthood. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. Help us in our time of need. And this passage leads us into the next part of it. So we think about the myrrh. So once again, it's another spice like frankincense, but this time myrrh speaks of sacrifice. It was often used in the preparation of um, bodies for burial. And it says that Jesus is also um, going to die. It says that he is human. He is also, um, he was born without sin. He is our perfect atonement. And he offered himself. That's what his sacrifice says. That's what the myrrh says. Now in all these things I've said that there were four gifts offered here. So these three gifts are what the wise men has offered. But in there there's the big, one big gift that was offered was God offered Jesus to us. He was born that day in the stable in Bethlehem. And looking at these characteristics of Jesus that is represented in the gifts of the wise men, they say something about the character of God and how he gives gifts. So what does it say about God's gifts? Firstly, God's gifts are often unexpected. They turn up when we're not expecting them. Now, Jamie spoke in this last week, so I won't go into any, any great detail, but the unexpectedness is in Jesus' birth is that it was lowly. He was born to a virgin. It was in a stable. It was messy. It was complicated. He wasn't a king like you'd expect him to be. God's gifts are revealed and made known in the gospel. 
He is king. It's his kingdom. He's here to declare the kingdom of God is here and now. And through him, we can enter into that. It also says that in God's gifts, he offers more of himself. And that's in the priestly, priestly aspects of it. He is interceding on our behalf. He is the one who's standing before God and saying, hey, you're acceptable. Come forward. You are now part of that relationship. And it also says that he's offering himself as a sacrifice. He is the one who's put himself forward as the sacrifice for atonement so that we are washed clean and made fresh to be in front of God. And it also says it's brought to this fullness in eternity. Once more in the sacrifice, you know, we, we are brought into eternal life. God is making things new. He is making us new. God is doing a new thing and he is on the move. And you know, God still turns up in our lives here and now. He is still working in this way. Um, and I was going to ask Dave Charles to come up and share a bit about what happened in his house group this week when God turned up. Hey, guys. <clears throat> um, yeah, that, that Hebrews passage that Andy just read actually frames it really nicely. I'd just like to repeat the verse 16 before I, I tell you the story. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that was basically what happened in our small group. Um, and I also should frame this that this is, I'm not going to mention anybody's names because I think it's important that we give glory to God for this. And it very much was his doing. Like, there was nothing that we did special that, that meant that we were any different from any other small group. And I know God is breaking in across this church, but this is just one example of what he's been doing recently. So it, was, it started actually two weeks ago, and I wasn't there, um, and s someone in our small group, when we were praying and worshipping, was just miraculously healed of, a, of an ankle injury, and there was no, no hands laid on or, or prayer made, but there was this amazing testimony, and I was like, oh man, I wish I'd been there. I was there this week, um, and we, we'd had a fairly ordinary small group, we'd done some worship, which was, was really great. Um, we'd uh, took Jamie's notes and just kind of expounded a bit on them and, and discussed. Um, but it was a fairly casual small group. We didn't have any kind of formal study planned or anything like that. Um, and we decided we'd take a bit more time to pray. Um, so one of us led, the, the person who was leading the study, study led us in prayer and, and just said, come Holy Spirit. And then all heaven and hell broke loose. <laughs> and we were basically there for two hours. Um, and it was really just the grace of God. I think it, basically what that passage says, you know, that Jesus can empathize with us. He knows what we're going through. And there were people in our small group, including myself, all of us had things that just were highlighted through prophecy. People were speaking out um, these things into each other's hearts and saying, look, I see this in you. Can we, can we pray over that? And we just split up into, there's maybe only about eight or nine of us split up into groups of, of two or three ultimately. And it just kind of happened quite organically. And, you know, one place, one person was being delivered of something, another place, another person was being healed. And the same was happening over here. And it went on until about half 11 at night. And, you know, we did say, if you need to leave, go. But everybody, everybody was just really enjoying being in the presence of God and just seeing, seeing God move. So, yeah, we saw people were seeing demons fleeing and, and someone actually opened the window at one point to let demons out because we were seeing this, uh, this, these kind of black tendrils coming out. And it wasn't like anything dramatic. There was no, like, screaming or people writhing or anything like that. It was just very, very casual, much like when John did that, that sermon on deliverance. It felt very much like that. Um, and someone was healed of, a, of an injury that had happened that week, which was, was really cool. So, yeah. Just a bit of what, what Jesus does when he turns up. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, God. So really what it says is that you, although there are symbols in that story from the stable, God still turns up here and now and his gifts are good. He is here to make things new. So how do we step into that frame this Christmas? How do we position ourselves? I've been doing a bit of reading recently about um, Christian mystics of the 14th century or 15th century. And it's very random, really. But there's an interesting concept that comes out of it, which is the nativity of the, of the soul or the nativity of our lives. You know, in our, in our hearts, we are like the stable. We are messy. We are dirty. Things are not ordered. Things are chaotic. Things are not right. But into that, Jesus was born. And into our souls, Jesus is born. And in this season, we need to recognize that Jesus is born in our souls. So how do we get ourselves into that position in this season that that is the thing that we are focusing on? And it really comes from fleeing from what is the external, what's coming into us. You know, set aside all those thoughts of what am I going to be buying somebody out of panic and what, how are they going to receive it when I give it to them? What are they going to think about me even the way I've given it? And all these externals, the pressure about overconsumption, the pressure about how many presents am I going to give my kids? Are they going to like them? Are they really going to um, be kind of overwhelmed within five minutes and then feel dissatisfied for the rest of the day? Let's forget all that. And when we come to these images of food and a table that's heaving, we need to think that we don't need that. All we need is Jesus in our hearts. We just need to set all that aside. So we need to free ourselves from this externality that comes in from our society. And then we also need to free ourselves from an internal narrative when we're talking things to ourselves that are not good and not helpful. We need to banish these things. Because in our hearts, Jesus is born. He is born as king. He rules in our hearts. He is born as priest. He intercedes for us in front of God. He lives in us. And he is sacrifice. He has made it right that we can be in that relationship with him. So in this season, when you're giving something, give because Jesus gave himself to you, that he is in your heart. Don't think about what somebody else is going to think of it. And when you receive something, think about the heart behind and what's coming forward to you. And the challenge is also, how are we going to receive Jesus into our hearts? What is that? That's the challenge. We need to sit here. God has offered his gift. How are we going to receive it? Are we going to turn around and say, you know, that doesn't fit with me at the moment? That's not the way that I, I expected things to happen. It certainly is unexpected, but that's, you know, we need to sit and go, what is the heart of God behind that gift that he sent his son into a stable, into a lowly position so that he may free us? So we need to think and consider that. I'm going to ask David to come up. He, um, I was worrying this week about how I was going to end the the sermon and then David turned up at house group and shared a spoken word poem that he had written and it matched it pretty pretty spot on so over to David just to clarify it is actually my house group so I didn't like rudely <laughs> knock down the door <laughs> and say stop <laughs> um, okay so this is called how to have a traditional Christmas experience um, take away the snow 
There's never any real snow. Take away the white, dusty stuff, the refrozen slush, the cold, the dark, the hush, the fake commercial rush. And take away the sprouts and the turkey that's out. For a real, authentic Christmas experience, order an ox, dial a donkey, lay out the straw and the moss and the mud, get it in the floor and the walls and your clothes between your toes, Christmas and earth tones. Picture it sitting in it, dung and stinking dirt. And there, in the middle of it, a terrified father, a young mother, a baby crying in a trough. Then there's the presence. No ring from your crush, no box set from Lush, just a few wise men coming in clutch. Gold, because he's a king. Frankincense, because he's God. Myrrh, because he'll die. And I'm asked why. Why would God, the God, creator of the universe God, who could predict the lottery, give up paradise for poverty? Why come at all, knowing that we would torture him for absolutely no sin, knowing that we'd nail his hands and feet to a tree in the street? Why pray, Father, forgive, or choose my life over his? Knowing everything we do, why pray I forgive you, or I love you? All I know is, he offers us gold, and we chose the dirt. He came to heal, and we chose to hurt. This Christmas starts with your heart. The gift has been given where we play our part. Christ is free to all who believe. This Christmas, ask and receive. There you go. Thank you, David. Why don't we stand?